Hello, thank you for downloading this podcast of the NYU Abu Dhabi Institute. We hope you enjoy listening to this. For more information about our programs, please visit www.nyuad.nyu.edu slash institute. Well, 
Here are a couple of signals I will pass on to the speakers in case they undermine the capacity of future generations to speak as much as they need. And with that in mind, let me please launch our conversation. Uh, I would like to ask our speakers about their backgrounds and whether they can tell us more about the perspective, the lenses through which they approach the climate question. So we'll start with Jinan, then Richard, then Damilola, and eventually Benedict. Wonderful. Thank you very much for that introduction, um, Odd. So as you said, yes, I work, um, so I'm in the legal studies department, and I work on refugee issues mostly, uh, but also forced migration uh, more broadly. Um, and so the way that I look at the climate crisis or the you know, climate change more broadly is how it is inducing or contributing to, uh, uh, to migration, forced migration or otherwise. Um, and so it's, you know, this is something that has been discussed for the past maybe or more so in the past decade. Uh, and there's a lot of controversy uh, just because of it's difficult to kind of determine sometimes the causes uh, or say that there is one uh, predominant cause. But that's the lens that I kind of that I bring to um, to this panel. Thank you. Um, I mean, I've been practicing as a barrister in England and Wales and Northern Ireland for about 20 years now, um, and climate change has been a constant feature in my practice throughout that time. I started off, for example, doing a number of cases about the consenting of wind farms or the expansion of airports, um, and whether you were promoting or opposing those developments, climate change arguments were a feature of them 20 years ago. Um, since then, I've been involved in advising on climate change issues, including the legal framework that there is in the UK um, and doing cases arguing about um, climate change as it's a feature in consenting of infrastructure projects or government decisions, um, financing projects overseas, for example. So a good chunk of my work in the last five years or so has been litigation about climate change, the courts in England. As a, a lawyer, I suppose I don't have a particular lens to approach climate change through. I have my own personal opinions, but when I am uh, a lawyer advising clients, I need to give them um, the best advice, uh, regardless, as it were, as, uh, as to what I might personally think when I'm arguing a case in court. Um, I will be representing my client's interest, discharging my duty to the court, and trying to in ensure, in a sense, that my my own lens doesn't enter into it. Um, there is, I suppose, an element of um, trying to judge how arguments will land with judges, trying to advise on the scale of legal risk, and therefore trying to judge how um, policies or decisions will be thought of by the wider world, how likely they are to be challenged, what the risk of challenge is. But generally speaking, as a, a um, a lawyer and an advocate, it's important not to let my personal views interfere with the work that I'm doing for clients. Yes. Um, well, I'm originally from Nigeria, one of the largest exporters of oil and gas. Um, so that naturally influenced my interest in, in energy law. And my career has subsequently taken me to some of the highest oil and gas producing countries from Nigeria to Canada to the US to England and um, now to Qatar. 
Um, so I look at energy law from the perspective of justice, ensuring that responses to climate change does not worsen um, societies and communities and livelihoods in some of these resource-dependent countries. Climate solutions must be practicable, must be fair, must be inclusive, and must take, account, take into account the historical contributions to the problem of climate change. So, um, and of course, that perspective is something that I developed working as an energy lawyer myself. As an energy lawyer in Canada, I, my job was to structure oil and gas transactions, right? So that, that sort of led me to, to understand the perspective of business, how businesses look at the problem of climate change. Um, and businesses are often seen as the problem, but I've also seen that businesses can be part of the solution. So, and I think that has influenced my writing. So you'd see me writing a lot about energy justice, um, you know, climate ethics, and uh, ensuring an inclusive and orderly energy transition. I'm uh, Benedict Kingsborough. I'm uh, from New Zealand originally. Uh, actually, not, not a major fossil fuel <laughs> producer, although I say somewhat. Uh, and I uh, went to Oxford University and worked there for quite a while uh, in international law and then moved to New York University, so I'm very much an academic. Because of my uh, training in international law and international relations, I uh, was preoccupied with how the techniques of international law, which people often would use, including in climate, by trying to organize an international treaty or treaty and protocol system or constituent parties and a lot of discussion about bindingness and interpretation and enforceability uh, of these things. But how those familiar techniques of a lawyer in doing international law could address the immense complexity of these kind of questions uh, and not just become too formal, too, too rigid, or too, too lacking in imagination, really. In fact, if anything, a drag on, the, on, on what needed to be done. Uh, and so, so that, that's been my preoccupation. And one of the routes into that is thinking about governance, how power is organized, what are the procedural, the, the, the proper processes for doing that, uh, and, and integrating economic incentives, culture, ways of thinking, uh, senses of history, even of responsibility, uh, uh, popular engagement with, with rules of law and how to blend those things together. And, and I think that for me, a pretty strong element is something that's important that academics can try to do is to both have a real commitment to the justice elements, the equity, uh, and to kind of speak up for those contexts, not for them, but about them, um, and uh, to, to try to find <coughs> ways of working those in. So, so and I think that in the end draws a lot more people along with these kind of projects. Uh, and second, I think to draw in a sense, uh, lawyers are often about what's happened already, about disputes and uh, looking at the past rules, uh, but also to draw in a sense of the future and ways in which lawyers can think seriously about the future and build that into the whole structure of thought. Thank you very much. So I'm not supposed to cough with the microphone. I'll do my best. <laughs> Already failing. Um, so thank you so much for highlighting this very diverse range of perspectives on the, on the debate uh, regarding climate change and how to transition to, to net zero. So um, Another question that I'd like to, to ask relates to the role of the law, not as a solution, but as a cause of the climate crisis. And um, because legal rules are rarely mentioned when you look at the reports, scientific reports on the roots of climate change, uh, it's hardly the case that law is ever mentioned. Even many tools that are legal from a legal perspective, like for instance, 
emissions trading system or carbon taxes are always presented as economic tools. Uh, so the law doesn't seem to be playing a role, um, not even amongst the solutions, but not yet also in the problems. And this seems to be reflective of, uh, of the idea that climate change would take its roots in economic phenomenon, in sociological path dependency, in cultural beliefs, but not in the way the legal system functions. But as lawyers, maybe we're obsessed with the law, but as lawyers, we always have the impression that actually some of the rules of the game are flawed. Some of the rules of the game actually drive the climate crisis. And for instance, the fact that the price at which a ton of carbon is being traded today is insufficient to hit uh, the net zero targets uh, has everything to do with the fact that environmental law fails to force economic actors to internalize the social cost uh, uh, that derives from the, the environmental impacts. So with that in mind, I'm wondering whether you would agree with such a statement of mine. And maybe <laughs> starting with, uh, with Dani Lola, um, you spoke about your long-standing experience in energy law. So would you say that energy law has something to do with the roots of a climate crisis? Well, I, I think um, the nature of energy law before now focused uh, more on compliance. And um, as a practicing lawyer, our job then was just to advise uh, businesses on how to comply with existing law. So and when you look at law from a compliance mindset, it does not include that responsibility mindset, which are two different things. So. The, the definition of a good energy lawyer is a lawyer that takes a transaction from start to finish and ensures that your client achieves maximum profit and does not face any regulatory sanction. The moment there is no regulatory fine or sanction, then you are a very, very good lawyer. Uh, but we are seeing that that compliance mindset has not delivered uh, climate action. We are seeing also that the tendency of businesses to look at things from a cost-benefit uh, analysis standpoint, um, which is the way businesses are naturally. Businesses are set up for profit. Businesses are not charities. They are set up for profit, right? Uh, but we've seen the failure of those sort of thinking, especially now with increased legislation on climate change. Businesses themselves are seeing that you will not make profit without climate action, right? So, it, it's, so is then a question of when do you want to address your risk? Do you want to address your risk at the beginning or at the end when there is a fine or sanction? So I think to the extent that energy law did not catch up on time to this sort of responsibility mindset, then energy law can be seen to have been slow to react to this problem. And I'll give you an example. Uh, you see that... Um, we started talking about climate change. The first instrument is in 1992, in the UNFCCC. Uh, but how many countries have enacted climate legislation? For example, my own country, Nigeria, we only had our first legislation in 2021. So that is several years after, and that is several oil licenses after, several mining licenses after. So I think energy law did not catch up with development in climate law on time. And even Nigeria is held out as a very good example of a, you know, of a progressive country in Africa because many countries in Africa still do not have a climate legislation, and even in this region as well. So you see that energy law needs to catch up and ensure that we 
tackle the risks of energy transactions from the beginning rather than this mindset of if there is no, if nobody's making noise, then there's no problem. I think that has been the issue for many years. And um, moving on to, to Richard. Richard, you've been practicing climate law in the UK for, for several years. And England was actually one of the very first countries to adopt uh, climate change acts. So can you tell us a bit more about what it requires and whether the UK seems to be bearing its fair share of the climate burden? Um, yeah, so the UK has got a Climate Change Act from 2008, which is set up with a system of a um, series of binding targets. So there's a um, 2050 net zero target where the UK's carbon account has got to be 100% less than uh, it was in 1990 by 2050. And then there's a process of um, setting five-year carbon budgets to get there. And there's a legal duty not only to meet the um, 2050 net zero target, but also to meet um, the carbon budgets in each five-year period. Uh, there's a duty on the government to formulate and publish policies and proposals to ensure those carbon budgets are met. Um, a, a process of uh, reporting against those carbon budgets and including having to come up with additional proposals and policies if you're not going to meet any of those targets and an independent committee on climate change to advise the government on all of those issues. So I think it is um, a, a good piece of legislation. It is proving in the UK that it is working and it does seem to me that the UK generally speaking, is going much further than many of the countries in the world, not only in adopting the legal framework in 2008, um, but tightening it. So when the law was originally passed, the 2050 target was only 80% below 1990 levels. It's been increased to 100% below 1990 levels. Generally speaking, the, um, the process is working well in the UK. Um, carbon budgets that have arisen so far are being met. It will be more challenging to come through um, uh, the more difficult, demanding carbon budgets as we go further into the future. But in terms of its ambition, it is very high. Um, I think it, in the, the target for 2030, for example, which the UK included in its nationally determined contribution is something like 68%, um, which compares very well uh, against the EU, for example. Um, so I'm not going to say that the system is perfect, but it was um, adopted early. It's tough. Uh, it seems to be working in practice, um, but obviously there's still a great deal to do between now and 2050. And uh, Jinan, uh, speaking of uh, migration, so uh, can you maybe uh, explain what drives people on the roads to becoming climate migrants? Um, is it the climate itself, or does the climate crisis somehow come on the top of other issues that somehow may be related, caused by uh, flaws in the legislation uh, in, in the countries where they come from? Thank you so much for that. Yeah, so I think when we talk about climate migration, uh, I think we think that we know what we're, what we're talking about, that it seems, you know, these people are, they're migrating because there is something to do with, you know, to climate change. Uh, but actually pinpointing uh, the actual cause becomes very difficult. 
Um, so the International Organ Organization for Migration, uh, they define a cli climate migration very broadly. So it's a person or a group of people who have migrated uh, predominantly due to uh, either a sudden or a progressive uh, change um, in, the, uh, in the climate due to climate change, um, uh, either in, uh, within the borders of the country or externally. So that's incredibly broad. Um, and so it becomes very hard to kind of separate the climate aspect of it from all of the other uh, reasons that might be driving um, this uh, this migration. So, for example, in Ethiopia, you know, several years of droughts has caused uh, a lot of Ethiopian men, for example, to migrate abroad, like labor migration. Um, even though climate change is a big factor in that, it becomes very hard to separate who is, or it's, it's mixed migration, right? So what is the predominant, uh, predominant cause? So I think that's one thing just to mention when we talk about climate migration is, can we really, can we pinpoint? I mean, sometimes you can when it's a big disaster and you can almost um, directly link it to climate change that this has never happened before. Uh, but other times this becomes, uh, uh, becomes more difficult. Um, and I think the other thing also to, to mention when we talk about climate migration, what we see is perhaps, you know, the, uh, migration due to climate change or what we what we think is climate change but we also don't look at the flip side of it so the people who are able to migrate many times are the ones who have the resources to do so even though they might be meager the people who are trapped right like that also becomes um, another um, another actual maybe even bigger problem um, that they cannot uh, make use of uh, any type of, of migration but to go back to you know if we can even pinpoint or at least say that, you know, climate change is a part of it, is that also caused by ill-adjusted rules? In some cases, I think we can say yes. I mean, sometimes even when we look at, you know, not just, you know, we focus on low and middle income countries, but even high income countries. So when we look at, you know, for example, the, the, the devastation caused by Hurricane Katrina in the United States, uh, the, the, the reason why the devastation was so large was because of, you know, ill planning um, um, and, other, uh, and other issues that are much more um, uh, related to, yes, the rules, uh, the planning, the investment or the lack of investment um, in certain infrastructure. Um, and so this caused, I mean, uh, there were some people who were able to migrate, I mean, internally, right, to other places, but we also saw, you know, many images of people who are unable to. Um, and so, so yes, I do think that sometimes the rules or, or lack of, you know, um, robust uh, legal framework can exacerbate these issues. However, at the same time, I think particularly when you look at low and middle income countries, it becomes very hard to separate uh, between climate-induced uh, migration uh, and other forms of, uh, of drivers uh, that might um, uh, that might be exacerbated uh, by uh, by the climate, and sometimes having legal rules may or, or may not help um, in, in, in that kind of environment because it's just very hard to separate between what is actually causing uh, this type of uh, uh, migration or movement. Thank you. And uh, Professor Kingsbury, um, how, how would you say uh, does international field fit into this conversation? Uh, does its structure, its way of functioning somehow explain the difficulty of the climate crisis or at least the, the challenges in tackling it? Well, on one hand, eight billion of us have to live in a basic system of order. There has to be core stability of expectations where people can live and plan and relative safety, people can be fed. Uh, and it's, it's easy to get 
frustrated with international law because of the things where people try to invoke it where it doesn't seem to work well, but important not to lose sight of the really fundamental things, which it's a core part of. And there are um, big structural issues about the stability of the order that already exists there, and, and climate is going to be one of the things among many which puts that into question, as well as power shifts and a lot else. So, so on the one hand, we have to be somewhat conservative in trying to preserve order in the absence of a confidence of what else can be done there. Uh, on the other hand, it seems not an order which hasn't been very just uh, and uh, which, which I think there's sort of desperate demands for different kinds of reform, uh, but also it's been an order with a rather limited temporality. Uh, there's a hope that a state might go on and on and on uh, sort of forever, but uh, otherwise most of the time horizons have been quite limited. There and uh, in the sense of, sort of geological time, core changes in the conditions of, of, of planet and life has it, it, been that that's really completely different from legal time. That's not something which gets addressed. So, so there's it, 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 you call it a flaw or a kind of blindness, or, or if you try to take which I do a more sort of forward-looking positive. This is just a time when we have to think differently and start to work out how to do that. So, so and I think that's what we need now lawyers to be engaged in doing, and, and, and there is a conservatism in law which is to look for what's already there and the job one already has and to perpetuate that, and often that uh, leads to the blindness going on and on. And, and there was a time, particularly in, in the 1990s, of probably over-enthusiasm about globalization, a sort of heedlessness or even recklessness about the planetary consequences uh, and the justice consequences. And so some rules have become entrenched and some practice and some vested interests now, which really shouldn't have been probably, and where there's a bit of difficulty of digging out of that. And I think that calls for some creativity. I think the one other thing is the tendency of sometimes of lawyers to think, well, it's all about applying the techniques we've got, state responsibility, who's responsible for that, or uh, uh, the, the, the invoking the dispute settlement arrangements or the, the existing treaties. Uh, and, uh, and, 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 and slowness to grapple with the idea that it's really an immensely intricate business of regulation, governance, bringing a lot of different things together, in which sometimes the uh, just the traditional techniques on their own uh, can be ratified too much uh, and, and obstructionist. On the other hand, the attack on them becomes anti-formalist and a kind of destructive of really important things of legal values. And I think kind of readjusting our self-understanding to, to hit that balance differently instead of a dialectic of formalism versus deformalization and critique, but there's something way beyond that. And I think it needs more and more people to go there and, and unsettle that. So turning then to this kind of more forward-looking perspective and the role that the law and lawyers could play in the future to, to address the, the climate crisis. So how, how do you see this role? Uh, and do you think that the, the climate crisis is kind of calling for a deep transformation in the legal structure? Um, maybe we start with, uh, with Jinan. So uh, there's no climate refugee statutes as things stand now, is that right? Can you explain like, the plights of people who escape their home uh, for climate-related reasons in this context and what kind of transformation this migration crisis may be calling for? 
Thank you. So this is a big, big, big question. But and you have only five minutes. Yes, yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, there's, there's a huge debate, right? I mean, even the term, you know, climate refugee, like, are they refugees, are they not? And, you know, if you look at the definition of a refugee in the 1951 Convention, there's obviously, you know, an emphasis on persecution. Um, at the same time, you have other regional um, definitions that take into account, uh, you know, civil disturbances or wars and things that, and, you know, alien domination and so on and so forth. But very, but to include, there's been resistance to include uh, those who um, uh, move or are forced to move, are obliged to move due to climate reasons. There's been a resistance to kind of include them within a refugee definition for a number of reasons. Um, and that is that, I mean, you know, there's already resistance to accept refugees on the basis of persecution, right? And those who are fleeing war. And so the idea is if we expand this, then what happens is you have those people who are fleeing persecution and then, you know, the uh, protection becomes, the protection space becomes even smaller. Uh, so that becomes kind of, you know, one, one issue. There's obviously an understanding, I mean, the reason why um, there is a desire to include or to have this term of climate refugee because it explains kind of the duress uh, and uh, of, you know, having to flee because of uh, climate-related reasons. Um, and at the same time that when we say refugees, because there is a global regime, a legal regime for the protection of refugees, then it becomes, well, then we should also have a legal regime to protect these people who are also escaping uh, uh, or leaving, uh, not out of their choice, but because they are made to because of these um, climate-induced uh, induced reasons. Um, and so there are a lot of discussions about you know, we should have a separate uh, regime that, uh, that can kind of govern uh, uh, or at least provide uh, protections. I mean, sometimes when there's an overlap, you know, between refugee status and climate-induced um, uh, forced migration, uh, a person can get refugee status. But as it stands, there isn't a status or a legal framework. Uh, that governs or that provides protection for those people who are fleeing. I mean, the two 2016 uh, New York Declaration, the Global Compact for Refugees, uh, the Global Compact for Migration, they all mention uh, climate-induced um, uh, 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 migration. The Global Compact for Refugees, you know, kind of makes clear that, like, while not technically refugees, there can be some overlap. So it's always about having an overlap with, you know, persecution um, uh, or that, that type of harm. Um, but however, I think sometimes we look at the international, because you know, as international lawyers we do that, but there are some uh, domestic uh, measures that have been taken um, in order to actually to protect people who have been forced to leave due to climate reasons. And usually these are the more sudden ones, you know, the more extreme ones, not the progressive and the gradual uh, climate-related uh, causes. So, for example, um, in Sweden, in their immigration policy, they have a special, you know, protected category, and and um, and that applies to people who can't return because there is a climate disaster. Similarly, in the U.S., they also have a temporary protected status, and if you're already in, you know, the country, um, and it's been identified that the, that you know your your home country has some kind of uh, disaster, then you may also be permitted um, to stay. Um, Argentina also had a policy uh, for those who are fleeing. Um, environmental disasters in specific countries in Latin America. So you see that there are some, you know, individual countries that are um, uh, kind of taking the initiative and having these, these policies um, or these laws in order to ensure that people aren't, you know, uh, refooled, right? So we have the principle of non-refoulement, that you should not return uh, a refugee back to where he or she uh, may be persecuted or at least suffer uh, some sort of grave harm. And so it's almost, it almost seems that 
this principle is migrating to, uh, no pun intended, you know, to the, um, to kind of the, these domestic institutions that, um, uh, that are incorporating this almost a principle of non-refoulement when there is this climate, uh, when there is, you know, an environmental disaster in a certain country, and so they, they will allow um, access and stay. It's still not clear what actual protections, you know, the person would have. So if you have refugee status, then, you know, you will be allowed to work, for example. Uh, but over here, you have other legal frameworks that come in. So you have human rights protections. So if the state is a party to any of the international human rights treaties or they themselves have human rights legislation, even if there isn't something specific to govern that status, uh, human rights protections will still apply in that case. So. So I don't have, obviously, a big grand solution at an international scale. It's, it's, I think, very difficult. But I do see that some states are kind of taking um, uh, the initiative to ensure a kind of non-refoulement for, um, for those who are displaced due to uh, climate reasons or can't return. Uh, the last point that I wanted to mention is that we do have, you know, the International Covenant on uh, Economic, Social, and Cultural Rights. Um, and the committee has sometimes, um, in their general comments, they have, you know, included, um, you know, the right to, um, you know, a healthy climate or an environment in the rights that are protected um, in that convention. General comments are not binding, uh, but they do help states in their interpretation um, of these rights. Um, and so that can, that's also kind of an alternative uh, framework to kind of to look at in terms of protecting people um, um, who might be forced uh, uh, to move or are forced to flee uh, due to climate uh, causes. And turning to uh, Damirola Olawi, um, can, you, can you tell us a bit about how the countries in the MENA region are responding to the, to the climate crisis and how they're addressing the needs to pursue their development, which as of now has been uh, highly carbon intensive Yes, I think um, the uh, you know ongoing emphasis on climate change is transforming energy law as expected. Um, across the region, there is of course increased awareness. Um, almost all of the countries in the region have adopted um, plans, nationally determined uh, contribution plans, uh, you know, or net zero plans. Some saying they would achieve net zero by 2060. Some uh, earlier. Um, so you'd see that awareness is leading to action. Uh, of course, the emphasis on climate change should naturally transform the way we also think about energy transactions. Uh, and uh, I have a book that is coming out uh, with Oxford called Net Zero and Natural Resources Law. And in it, you know, we unpack some of the, you know, the way climate law is changing, even some of the established principles of natural resources law that have shaped energy transactions over the years. And I'm going to mention just five so that you can read the book when it eventually comes out. Before now, we, we focused in energy law on do no harm, making sure that energy transactions do not, you know, should not cause pollution. But increasingly, courts are insisting that you should now do good, do good and do no harm, which means you should prioritize responsible investment. And we've seen, for example, Qatar saying, henceforth, all of our sovereign wealth investment will be analyzed from the perspective of environmental impact. So that is how Qatar is moving beyond just doing no harm, but also emphasizing doing good. Uh, of course, the definition of harm itself is changing. Virtually every country in the region is gradually recognizing that failure to abate 
greenhouse gases is now a arm, which was not the case before. So for example, you see Qatar Petroleum rebranding to become Qatar Energy, focusing on strategic investment to limit greenhouse gases. The second principle that we, we were taught from the beginning is permanent sovereignty over natural resources, which means it's your natural resource, you can do whatever you want with it. No foreign entity has a right to tell you how to use your natural resource. But again, we see that that is changing. We now see that uh, development in climate law is making countries to understand that you must then use those resources in a responsible manner and in a manner that will not jeopardize the ability of future generations to use theirs. We've seen a rise of resource nationalism as a result. You know, countries, you know, you know delaying decisions on issuing new licenses, and we're going to see more of that uh, as a result of climate law. But you see how that there's a shift in that understanding of permanent sovereignty over natural resources. A third principle that we've been used to is the idea of sustainable development Inter intergenerational equity, you know, which is use your resources now in a way that future generations would have something, um, you know, to, 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 to meet and use. And so you, you, you see that increasingly countries across the region are realizing that a delay to the energy transition is a violation of that intergenerational equity principle. So you see a rise in national visions. Almost every country in the region has released a national vision. So for example, the Qatar National Vision 2030 talks about the need to transition to a knowledge-based economy that will train an environmentally aware generation that will be able to lead environmental uh, action. So you see that that intergenerational equity principle is transforming from just a principle to national visions. And we have the UAE national vision 2035 and Kuwait national vision and the likes. Um, a fourth principle is the, the, the energy justice and climate justice principle, which has shaped our understanding. The idea that if you did not cause the problem Oh, you should no one should suffer the the, the uh, you know disproportionate burden for addressing climate change, which is the idea of climate justice. But you see that that notion is transforming into just transition uh, notion. You know we've talked about just transition ensuring, and now we've seen that even in transactions, you see that we are introducing just transition clauses in petroleum contracts, which is a, a, a significant development. You now see. Uh, petroleum contracts, including a paragraph saying that uh, we must ensure responsible technologies such that, you know, no one will bear the undue burden of this transaction. And I'm like, wow, that is just transition being integrated into petroleum contracts. And we need to see more. It, it's, we've seen some from countries taking the lead in this regard. We've seen the IBA, for example, the International Bar Association, releasing just transition clauses that should be integrated into petroleum contracts. And I, I would love to see more countries in the region integrating that into their, their contract. The last uh, principle that I will talk about is the solidarity principle. Uh, before now, we understand that solidarity means cooperation. The need, no, no one country can address the problem of climate change in isolation. Uh, you know, but now, even the idea of solidarity is moving beyond just cooperation. It is now the notion of technology transfer, climate finance, ensuring that uh, we need to avoid, uh, you know, uh, a strategy that leaves anyone behind. So solidarity is also transforming to mean 
avoiding competitive geopolitics. So we need climate-aligned diplomacy. And in COP28, you see a lot more people talking about climate-aligned diplomacy. We need to fight a problem. It is a time-sensitive problem. We need to come together. So, and I think lawyers must train the next generation of diplomats to understand the language of climate diplomacy because without climate diplomacy, we cannot achieve solidarity. And without solidarity, we will not be able to tackle the climate emergency. Um, turning to Benedict Kingsbury, um, what about the future of international law in the face of a climate crisis? Uh, does, do you think that the crisis calls to the fore the creation of new institutions, new courts, or changes in the way current institutions function at the international level? And maybe the, the way we think of international law uh, as international, uh, you, you, you wrote extensively on planetary thinking. Can you maybe elaborate on what it means uh, in terms of changing our views of what the international community should be doing? Well, uh, as lawyers, we, we think of the law of our own people, our own city, uh, village. Uh, our religious law may be uh, our national law, certainly. Uh, well, of us, that's what we expect to practice, etc. And we might have some regional law. We certainly uh, they all think that there's international law, which is usually we start as think it's the law between the states, uh, helping them to organize their relations, one at the treaty system and customary international law and all that. Uh, there's some courts already, but those things, some of them are invoked now on climate, including the ICJ and the advisory opinion request, the loss, uh, regional inter-American court and so forth. Uh, so uh, we're, we're pretty familiar with all of that. So we get as far as the international, and that's long-standing in all law schools nearly, uh, then in the last 40 years or so we've had something called the global. Some thought, ah, well, we've got to have more flows, that, that these the national, the borders are rigid and there's so much private enterprise and uh, the, the, uh, the nature of international commercial relations, but also the civil society, your flows of ideas, uh, digital, uh, so that all these things are flows, and also Ill illegal flows, the drugs and uh, uh, dangerous things, and uh, so, so, so all that's about the law of flows and how to organize it. That's been the global law project, uh, and learning, and, and some people have hoped for convergences and at least become familiar, all that. So, so that's an important project. We, we've been very much part of that, uh, and the way NYU Abu Dhabi is, in some ways, is a part of a similar kind of thought, uh, and it's important. Um, but uh, I think we can get to the point now that we can't just have the international and the global, we have to have also the planetary, the sensibility that there's something about the space in which all eight billion of us, soon to be more, live, and all the other species, and the, the formations, the, the rocks and the seas and the uh, conditions of things, of life, but even of non-life, and, and that, that itself, the planet even, is a bit like some other planets uh, somewhere, that it's not, not the only planet even, and that the Earth exists in space, and uh, the stratosphere we, we're very familiar with, and the ozone depletion, the importance of that, but the, the, even the area of someone's called legal space is often a part of us, and if, um, it, uh, more and more, I think we have that sensibility. So, so I think it's a changing the thought of what, what we're about here, not, not to discard it. Of course we believe in national law and, 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 and uh, local law and uh, international law. They're all, all necessary to this, but there has to be something else, and that something else hasn't been framed or really taught or thought about. Uh, and, uh, and, but I think the, the idea that all the preconditions for our life, the preconditions under which there could be law of any sort of, of human society, uh, which were the environmental ones, the, the, the circumstances that we could breathe air and uh, uh, that the seas would be like they are and so forth, the, 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 the sudden realization that that's not correct, that we have to ourselves be active, 
uh, be stewards, and that those mean compromises and cutting off some of the other things even that we might have believed in before or been reckless about, uh, or at least got to take that account differently. So, so I think that's the gestalt change. At the moment, we aren't really arguing that or seeing that instantiated, uh, but there's quite a lot of beginnings of thought, but certainly that's very much my own commitment. And, and I think it's uh, an element of at least of what young people are looking to existing institutions to do, and, and lawyers and law schools and the institutions of international law, international order and diplomacy as it is. So, so I agree with very much with that sentiment, but I'd probably add that element of a planetary sensibility, which I think isn't being articulated really by lawyers yet and, and, and needs to be. Um, so maybe we'll see the concept of planetary boundaries uh, pervading the courts and maybe the UK might be the first to experience such challenges. What do you think, Richard? Um, there are now many court cases uh, related to climate change in, 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 in everywhere on the planet, essentially in Europe, in the United States, and South America. Um, you have acted in some of the best-known cases in the, in the UK. So what are your main takeaways from uh, your experience on climate litigation in the UK? And maybe, uh, because this seems like a very creative area, um, with lawyers being pushed into the limits of uh, creativity and innovation, uh, maybe there's something you'd like to share with, with our students and our faculty about uh, the role of legal education in the face of this very uh, innovative field of law. Okay, so there has been quite a lot of litigation in the UK. Some of it has been focused on... Um, the substance of what's being done. So there have been challenges to government policies, um, government decisions, um, but also challenges um, in the private sector. So there was a recent case where Client Earth were um, arguing that Shell's plans should be more um, ambitious using um, the Companies Act and shareholder action. I think it's fair to say that all of those cases arguing for more substantive action have failed. Um, and that comes down to a number of reasons, I think. First of all, um, it, it comes down to the nature of the legal framework, which is um, setting uh, largely procedural requirements at the moment, at least. As I mentioned earlier, carbon budgets in the future will be more challenging to meet, but at the moment, at least, it's largely procedural in nature, but also because the courts will defer, generally speaking, to the expertise of decision makers, whether they are company directors or um, government decision makers. The kind of separation of powers approach means that um, the courts will not try to second guess decisions which might be very scientific, technical decisions, or involve very complicated and complex questions of social and economic policy, balancing various competing considerations. There's been a, a limited degree of success in cases that have been challenging um, procedural compliance with climate laws in the UK. Um, some very limited success, really, but um, that doesn't necessarily lead to anything changing, or where it does, it might simply mean that some uh, decision has to be retaken, um, and it might well be the same decision, or a, a plan or a policy has to be rewritten, but there's no guarantee that it will actually be better, and indeed it might be substantively worse, potentially, for the climate. So there's been very little success 
really in climate litigation in the UK, and I think that reflects the nature of the problem, both because it is technical and scientific, but also because of the political nature of it. And ultimately, what matters is what happens in the real world. And law can only go so far in driving that. It needs um, politicians and governments to decide that they're going to do things. It needs resources put into it to make those things happen. And ultimately, um, it comes down, I think, to um, whether individual citizens care enough about it that they are going to be pressing their politicians to take more action because the legal framework ultimately is to rise, certainly in the UK, from Acts of Parliament passed by the UK Parliament or the devolved administrations, government policy, which the courts will enforce in some occasion, uh, on some occasions, comes from elected politicians. And it will only be, I think, if people raise um, climate change as a more important issue when politicians come knocking on their doors that they will be forced to take action. Um, as far as the education point you raise, I mean, it does seem to me that this does need, uh, for, for training legal students at least, some changes. And I think there's probably two key ones. The first is it, it's necessary to, to ensure that lawyers are equipped with some of that scientific, um, technical, economic expertise, for example. Um, I'm on a working group of the Bar Council of England and Wales, the Climate Crisis Working Group, which is looking at producing not only um, material to ensure that lawyers in the UK are properly informed on climate issues, but also potentially introducing guidance to say it is an ethical obligation where um, barristers are involved in cases giving rise to climate issues, that they need to be properly informed about the science and the policy context in order to do that. The second thing I think that probably needs to be changed is thinking about it on a more interdisciplinary basis. So the cases that have been brought in the UK so far have covered a wide range of issues, public law, environmental law, um, human rights, uh, as well as uh, companies' law and uh, shareholder uh, actions, for example. But uh, climate is such that it almost um, covers every single area of law. You can bring in tort law, uh, a lot more kind of business, commercial law, criminal law, for example. Um, and the way that law is taught and practiced tends to split things into silos, whereas really I think to tackle the climate crisis you need more collaboration, more interdisciplinary teaching, bringing not only the full range of the laws together, but also ensuring there is the technical, scientific and policy knowledge that lawyers need in order to be able properly to advise their clients and to be you know, making submissions to, to the a court on a fully informed basis. Thank you. So probably the Netherlands might be a better testing ground for the concept of planetary boundaries in the UK for climate activists. Um, and uh, thank you for sharing your views also on, on legal education. I don't know if maybe other speakers would like to follow up on this question of, of legal education, if you have some, some thoughts that you'd like to share on how the climate crisis may call for a change uh, in legal education. Uh, uh, I, when I taught at Oxford, Roman law was still compulsory, of course, and, and, uh, and we couldn't get an environmental law 
force established. Uh, so, and eventually Roman law was abolished, but I regretted that. So, so I, I say that because there's a question of what to drop uh, here. And there's, it, it, there's also a bit of a problem. Roman law, yes, quite right. Uh, yeah, yeah, long overdue. It's, uh, of course, there also should be a lot of other things, including Islamic law and so forth. But, but, uh, yes, but uh, uh, because the, the education has to be about equipping people to function for the next 40 or 50 years. And there's a bit of a risk of the, and you feel this a lot in the US, of the sort of problem solution. Okay, we've seen a problem. Everyone's agreed now it's a problem. Some people call it a crisis. I tend not to use that word. We've got to do something. Okay, we've got to reform. We've got to do this. So, so and then. Uh, what you find is after a decade or two, it turns out all kind of other utterly important things have got neglected. And then there's a sudden panic, oh, well, now we've got to do this and that. And then there's another layer of disaffection. So to some extent, that dialectic is inevitable. But I think there's a risk of over... Uh, the, I think that uh, the climate, and even the planetary boundaries term, which I'm also a little unsure about, is a tendency to reduce the thing to a number. Climate, 1.5 or 2. There's immensely complicated set of thousands of problems and millions of kind of actions and new approaches and policies and affecting businesses will be different. So many things have to pass through that, like an hourglass shape, through that narrow funnel of being something to do with something which is reducible to a number, which is kind of necessary for mobilization. Uh, but like the awful business of rankings and all of that, which I, of course most of us disagree with utterly. But so, and the planetary round is a bit like that too. It's quite strict. Well, here's the number. It's, it's, so, so, so I think there's a bit of a risk of trying to get everything to fit what's measured as what matters and all of that, and losing sight. And I think of the, what, what else is in the planetary, the, night, the, the water cycle and nitrates, uh, the, the, uh, the situations of biodiversity, of ocean anisification, and all the people who've got to live there and all the other. So, so I, I think it's quite important, to, uh, talking about holistic things, to also be holistic in how we think about it. I think um, I would also, I mean, I totally agree with the point um, Benedict made. I think I, I would just add, the idea of um, the need to integrate localism and innovation into the teaching, uh, into education now, because climate change is a global problem that requires local solutions. And uh, before now, we, we, we often, legal education focused on training people to become barristers, solicitors, or working in government as civil servants and the like. That will not deliver climate action. What we need are innovators, people that can study law or study engineering or sciences and take that knowledge to solve real-life problems. That is what this century requires. And I always give the example of my classmate when I was at Harvard who left and decided to start a recycling company using legal knowledge to start a recycling company back in Lagos and that company has solved a lot of problems with, uh, you know, waste in Lagos, and it has won a lot of national and international awards for that innovation. And at times I ask myself, why have I gone on this path of writing books and all of that, <laughs> you know? So we need uh, students that can be that innovative. Uh, and there's another example of, of a former student who left, uh, you know, law school and decided to start, you know, a transparency monitoring entity that will just monitor where is all the crude oil wealth going, how is it managed, and, you know, that, you know, so we need innovators like that. And the current sort of training that we've been delivering that does not focus on innovation, on, on real-life practice, may not achieve that. And in my own uh, course in, in, uh, in Qatar, I now have a simulation uh, course 
that basically there is no exam. You just from week one to 14, you're uh, you know, solving real life problems, just drafting real life problems, how to start a new startup entity, how to start a tech innovation company. And students have told me how it has helped them to think you know, less like a traditional lawyer, but to think more like uh, a 21st century modern lawyer that can solve real life problems. Yeah, I mean, just I definitely agree with both of you. I wanted to add to that, especially to the holistic aspect of it. I think also sometimes when we teach law, we're very much, this is criminal law, this is human rights law, this is refugee law. Uh, and like Richard was saying, I mean, the environmental litigation touches on all aspects um, um, uh, of the law. Uh, and I think just kind of, um, in order to educate the students also, we have to be educated as well. So sometimes you'll find, you know, um, us, you know, kind of the, the issues from us where we don't incorporate um, all of these uh, these matters and topics that we're teaching. So when you teach human rights, you're talking about certain violations of civil and political uh, and political rights, um, but then not how there might be, you know, other factors that might be inducing, for example, human rights abuses in certain countries. Um, and I think definitely a holistic approach is very, very, very important, and particularly when we talk about um, yeah, how separate kind of each You've been listening to a download from the NYU Abu Dhabi Institute. You'll find more information on our website, www.nyuad.nyu.edu/institute.